Welcome to another episode of Preserving Valor. I'm your host, Jay Vissers, and today we're diving into the second part of Joe Enrietti's riveting story. Previously, we followed Joe's journey as he joined the Army Air Force, undergoing rigorous training to become a tail gunner in a B-24 Liberator. But not all was smooth sailing. A heartbreaking incident occurred where Joe lost his initial crew in a training mishap. Today, we explore the next chapter of his life as he gets assigned to a new crew. Stay tuned as we continue to unravel his inspiring saga. Joe and his fresh crew found themselves relocated to Tonopah, Nevada. There, amidst the stark desert landscape, they pushed their limits and honed their skills. Joe said he always paid close attention to his instructors, but one of them stood out among the rest. Uh, the one that really taught me, I was there, he said, oh, listen, I mean, you Listen to what I tell you. If you want to get home, back home, you listen. Very good. And I never forgot those. Right? You listened. Well, anybody wants to get home out of the war. By the time they graduated, Joe's crew was at the top of their class. So. The top three crews were going to get three days off, and we were the top crew, so we got three days off. Joe and three of the other crew members decided to take the time to go to Reno, roughly 200 miles away. So we hooked the dude there, and when you'd hitchhike, though, you'd break off in twos, because most cars couldn't fit four people. So as tours, we were coming back, got into the area, it was late at night, signed in, and pretty soon I could see there's a emergency tele telegram for Enrietti. It's at the Red Cross office. And I told a person that was taking in our registrations, he said, yeah, they've been looking for you today. Anyway, I said, boy, I'd like to see that emergency telegram. He said, well, kind of late. I'll call the officer of the day. The officer of the day is a temporary assignment that rotates among the commissioned officers of a unit. The officer of the day is responsible for all operations in the absence of the commander or executive officer during non-duty hours. This includes ensuring the security, safety, and good order of the unit, as well as responding to emergencies or any unexpected events. A little second lieutenant came there and an MP. They came there and told him the problem. 
Oh, he said, we'll go down to the Red Cross office and get your telegram. So I went down there and my grandmother had died. They wanted me home for the funeral. Now in those days, you were lucky if you got home if your parents died, especially being that far away. But the little second lieutenant, he said, well, the Red Cross officer said, oh, we have to wake up the, the, uh, there's a squadron headquarters, let's put it that way. But it's just kind of late and the little red, or the little uh, second lieutenant said in emergency, the officer that they can sign emergency furloughs. Oh, you can? He says, yep. You got the papers? He said, yes. He starts filling out things, the papers, and didn't realize that I was in Michigan, but another 600 miles north. So he was giving me so many days off. I said, well, I'd never make it that far in. So they increased it so I'd have enough time. I'd go by train to Chicago. Chicago, you go by train up to here. I got my papers, $200 from the air, from the Red Cross officer on a loan. I had to pay that back. And he, the officer told the MP to bring him back to the office and to bring me to my barracks and get my travel bags all packed up and ready and go. And then you bring him into Tonopah to get the bus, because there was no train that was coming in there, to Salt Lake City. So I come into the barracks, he turns on the lights, and you're not supposed to have lights on after nine o'clock and everybody's hollering, shut those damn lights off or we'll be written up. And pretty soon they noticed that the MP with me. Henry Eddie, what the hell did you do? The MP got, got an emergency furlough. Oh, mother or dad? I said, my grandma. Oh, you don't, you don't get an emergency furlough for mothers or grandma. Lucky you get them for your parents. I said, shut up, I'm going. With his luggage packed, Joe got into the Jeep accompanied by the MP. They started their journey to the bustling station in Tonopah. Along the way, the MP turned and addressed Joe. Flyboy, he says, I hate to bust your bubble, he said, but when you get in Salt Lake City, there's going to be an MP there. Or the sheriff, if we don't have MPs there, and they're going to get you and they're gonna take your emergency furlough and they're gonna tear it up and they're gonna give you another one to get back to the base. I shouldn't tell you this, but he says, my job is to get you to Tonopah, to the bus station, and that's what I'm gonna do. But he said, don't tell anybody, but take my advice and don't take that bus. Where am I going? He says, your finger, hitchhike. Take a cab out to the main highway, which I, which I did. Joe took a cab from the bus station to the main highway outside of Tonopah. A truck driver took him to a nearby interchange where there was more traffic. Long story short, I got a ride from, it happened to be a doctor with a, well, 
those days they made cars painted up pretty good. It was in a Packard, four-door Packard, and he was a doctor and he stopped him. He asked me where I was going. He said, emergency furlough? Yes, and I said, I gotta get to Chicago to get the train up to Northern Michigan. Wow, he said. Oh, by the way, can you show me your emergency furlough paper? Joe showed the doctor his papers and they got underway. The doctor was headed to Chicago for further medical training. As we're driving along, he said, you've been up for quite a while? I said, yep. Can you drive? I said, yes, sir. He said, do you have a license? I said, yes, sir. Years ago, we could get a driver's license at 14. Well, he said, you go back there and sleep. When I get tired, then you, we'll keep going. So we get to the Chicago in a hurry. We'll only stop for food, the toilet, and gas. One of us will drive and the other one will sleep, which we did. There's two stations in, in Chicago. Union Depot and LaSalle Street Station. I had to get to the Union. So he drops me off and I start walking into the Union Station. And guess what I see? Two MPs that were standing quite away from me, but I thought, oh, maybe they got the news because they know I'm going to have to get this train up to. I thought, oh boy. The nose gunner on Joe's crew was from Waukegan, Illinois. Luckily, he had given Joe his father's phone number in case he needed it during his trip. His father ran a Kroger's grocery store. I was by a telephone booth and I had enough change. You always keep enough change so you can use the telephone. And I called Kennedy's father in Waukegan. He was at the store, told my problem. Yeah, I said, Bob said, you're going to be on your way up. You're getting an emergency furlough for your grandmother. I said, yeah. Well, and I come up the MPs, they said, take the elevated train up to Waukegan and I will meet that there. When you get there, you call me. The elevated train system, affectionately known as the L, continues to be a crucial part of Chicago's transit system, serving the city and some surrounding suburbs. It's been in operation for well over 100 years. I've been checking. He said, they might catch you in, in uh, Milwaukee, because that's an important railroad depot that they know you have to go through. He said, there's a, a small train that goes up to Ottenogan. And there's a train from Houghton, Copper Range train, that meets that in McKeever. He said, so if I were you, I got it all set that I can get tickets and we'll get you on that train. You'll miss the one going to Milwaukee. You'll miss that one that goes up to Houghton, to Calumet. I said, okay, so that's what I did. Took that train up that was going up to Noggin got to McKeever and there's a little train with a steam engine and that meets us there. It was half baggage car and half uh, people. And we got into home. Now I'm going through there in the middle of winter. No, not the middle, but in 
think it was still January. And I had a girlfriend in Houghton. My parents called her to meet me down in Houghton that I should take the the bus from Houghton to Kanyamet and they'll meet me at Kanyamet to take me to Mohawk. That's what they did. Joe brought his papers to the train master in Calumet and asked him to set up tickets for him to get back to his crew in Nevada at the time his emergency furlough dictated. In the meantime, the pilot had a telegram. A lot of it from the far away was done by telegrams. Mm-hmm. And they got into my home and he said, let me know if Joe gets there because they're taking bets that I'm not going to make it <laughs> and when I got home then I by telegram I notified him he then he telegrams me we had quite a few going in between he says please get back on the date that you're supposed to because we'll be leaving for overseas I forget how many days after that which I did and which we did we left for England Compared to his trip home, going back to base was simple. Just get on the train. Of course, Hike was on that train. He's a band leader. Here's a goal. Horse Hike. And his crew was on there, so they would be playing music had they could between the cars. Horace Hite was a popular American big band leader and TV personality. He appeared in one movie with James Stewart and Paulette Goddard called Pato Gold. They start to sway and then it is long Till all the folks are dancing, their hearts are gay When he would play them a song When he's done all that, they pass the hat Heights band was well known for their work with harmonicas. Stewart later called the movie his worst. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to Shortly after returning to base, Joe's crew shipped out for New York, and for the first time in all of his travels, Joe rode on a troop train. Before that, when you got to be a crew and you got your training in the States, you'd go to one of the places where they built the B-24. And you, they kept you there, they had quarters for the crews. You take your new plane and you would, how should I do? Make sure everything worked okay, fly it around. Then you would take that plane and fly it overseas to where you were supposed to be, whatever base you were supposed to be over there. But they were losing a lot of air crews by their first flight overseas. And they decided they could, they could lose planes because they could make them up pretty quick. I think they popped out from Detroit a B-24 every eight hours, a new B-24 came out of there. So they shipped us by ship. It was the Ile de France. 
It was a French ship. And when we got on to the Ile de France, there was the Queen Mary on the side at, at the port, let's put it in New York, New York there. The Ile de France and Queen Mary were among a number of luxury liners that had been transformed into troop and POW ships for the war. After the war, the Ile de France returned to service as a liner until eventually being scrapped in the 1960s after being featured and largely destroyed in the movie The Last Voyage. And those two were run without a convoy. They were fast enough. The B-24s from here would take you so far as their range would go, with bombs on that against the submarines. Right. When you got closer to England, the B-24s from there would come out there. Not only that, they had Navy men on the Ile de France with depth charges like barrels that they roll off and then they'd explode. Yeah. And we had one incident that we had to get up to our, our light bulbs. Didn't drop them down, but we were all set. If they did put a hole in our boat, we were in a little tub. The lookouts had sighted a submarine, though Joe and his crew never spotted it themselves. It took about five or six days to get to England. And uh, I don't remember how many it would hold, but there were some paratroopers on there and they were tough. They liked our 45s. <laughs> we had shoulder 45s. So we were told to make sure you sleep with them under your pillow because uh, they'd be, be crossing around and they'd... Oh, yeah. <laughs> but the trip, oh, the food, while well, I wasn't used, I wasn't a good Navy man. Because you'd stand in line for food, and before you know it, somebody was barfing, and that was all it took before you. So I did the new Fig Newtons and Coke from the, the, the ship PX. Oh, kept enough of them that they kept me going, and Coke would make, keep me going, and half the time I wouldn't even go on to try to get into the mess hall. The pilot of Joe's crew didn't let them slide on their physical training during the ocean crossing either. We were one of the first crews to exercise on that ship going over to England. Get up in the morning, do your exercises, and the other crews weren't too happy. <laughs> because pretty soon, their pilots were telling them, better go join them also. And But they kept us in shape, let's put it that way. Oh, yeah, here's strict. But we landed in. Oh, what's that big port in England? During the night, then, when I woke up in the morning, whoa, the ship, Southampton, I think was the name. There were ships all over, different types of ships. Then they had a small ship that we'd get off of and go down like a rope ladder and, and get into port with that. And then we went to the base at Ratcliffe, England. And that's where we would we were there for the rest of the war. In our next episode, Joe talks about life on the base in Rackheath, England, and what living through aerial combat taught him. 
You can follow Preserving Valor on YouTube, Substack, or Spotify to get more episodes as they're released. Support to continue our mission of preserving the personal stories of veterans is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening, and of course, a big thank you to Joe Enrietti and the veterans who served with him.